0: Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform. My name is Christopher Lamb, and this is a podcast exploring the bold attempts by Pope Francis to reform the Catholic Church. In this episode, I interview an archbishop who has tried to implement synodal reforms in his local church, and who has been helping another local church, the Diocese of Hexham and Newcastle, deal with major problems caused by a failure of leadership and governance by its former bishop, It is these issues that the Synod is seeking to address. Archbishop Malcolm McMahon leads the Liverpool Archdiocese, which has gone through a Synod process in recent years, and did so before the Global Synod got underway. I spoke to him in Durham, where he was presiding at a major gathering of Christian leaders and theologians, organised by the Centre for Catholic Studies. This was a kind of mini-Synod, and had been convened to discuss what the Catholic Church can learn from other denominations about synodal reform. Archbishop Malcolm McMahon, thank you for joining me on this uh, podcast, which is all focused on the synod process. We're here in uh, Ushaw College in Durham um, for a big synodal gathering uh, here in the northeast of England. Um, What are your impressions so far of this... uh, of this event? Well, I'm very
1: pleased to be here because I have two passions as, uh, in, about things in the church, and one is ecumenism, which I've been involved with at the local level and even for time at an in international level for, for many, many years. But also, this idea of synodality is something that's been growing very much in my mind and my heart. And uh, we did try very hard in, uh, in the, our diocese, the Archdiocese of Liverpool, to a and synod and we're now putting various kind of conclusions and results of that into practice so it's um
0: yeah so both of those
1: matters are very near to my
0: heart so this is a gathering that's bringing uh, different denominations together to listen to each other about what each tradition and particularly the catholic church can learn from other denominations of the churches about the the idea of, uh, of, of learning from each other is
1: quite quite difficult for, for some some people because we believe the Holy Spirit only speaks to our particular church. And so that's why we are listening now to what, what they say and believe and do.
0: And, uh, and we hope that they will learn from us too. Now, Pope Francis has obviously made the whole question of a more synodal church an urgent priority and we are in the northeast, in the Diocese of Hexham and Newcastle, which you are, at the moment, the temporary leader of. Well, it's a new bishop being appointed, but you have been in charge. And there's obviously been a, a really difficult situation, um, which many people are upset about following the resignation of, of Bishop Byrne. And it strikes me that that is a case of where uh, there is a need for more synodal governance because the bishop seemed to have made a series of very bad uh, errors of judgment uh, around safeguarding and around leadership do you think uh, this case of bishop burn does show the need for for big changes i think it needs there are some changes
1: certainly needed and um if i can just go over some of the things that i've uh, noticed discerned if you like and uh, the the um, measures I've put in place to to um, to remedy them to some extent. I mean I feel I have a duty to um, to make a kind of a, a good platform for our new Bishop Bishop Stephen Wright uh, to to work from. Um, so that's involved getting various reports done, um, some investigation into what uh, happened in the time leading up to Bishop Boba Burns' resignation. Um, but if I could just say a couple of things. One is, I think, that there was a, fun, there was a fundamental problem about governance within the diocese. Um, the, the, the authority within the diocese was, was really centered on, on a few priests who, who had several roles. Um, so there was no really distribution of uh, authority within the church structures. So we have compensating structures within the church to, if you like, limit the role, the authority of a bishop and his advisors. Um, and those, those structures are essentially the council of priests, the deans of uh, different areas. Um, and uh, those two bodies would um, in some ways be the people against whom the bishop contests his ideas and his decisions. Now, in addition to that, the bishop is also allowed to have an Episcopal council, which consists of his Episcopal vicars. The Episcopal vicar is a priest who has authority, ordinary jurisdiction within that particular area of responsibility, so it's quite a senior position, and they should be on the council. But then also automatically on the trustee body, so I didn't agree with that trustee body is a, a secular regulator we we're, um, we're accountable to the charity commission um, and there's nothing to do with canon law or the church or anything else that's uh, purely within our, our civil structures within within England Great Britain um, and we so I, I examined the trustee and I rewrote to make sure there were no connections between priests becoming becoming trustees ex officio, with exception in the vicar general.
0: So effectively having a role of overseeing your own position. The Charity Commission would expect
1: in our case, in the case of churches like ours, to have equal number of lay trustees to to the clergy trustees. So I sorted that one out Uh, and then I also appointed um, three women on the late uh, lay side, uh, three women and one man, and there's four priests on the other side. We should all be working together, so the priests who are now trustees are there because of particular gifts and skills that they have. So that was one issue which uh, which I've approached. And there's plenty of room still on the trustee body for the new bishop to adjust it the like way he wants to. Now, there's also the... The question of, of the, an individual having multiple roles, so that then removes the voice, if you like, from the other priests. We're just talking about priests at the moment. So the so, if, for example, a particular priest has a has a, a role of we'll uh, pick a say, for example, pick one that there isn't. So we we'll say finance and administration that doesn't actually exist. But then he also has an area of responsibility as well, the Episcopal Picker for, say, Ensemblea, and then it might be um, Episcopal. He might then also be uh, someone who's a judge on a tribunal, marriage tribunal. He might also um, have a major church and uh, play a, a part in the in the uh, the city where the church is located. So the, that, by giving one man an audience role, you then disempower the others. So we ended up with a tradition where there was a small group of people working with bishop, a bishop or small group of priests who seemed to be controlling everything. And that's the perception of the priest. So we started with them. So I've started to dismantle that situation and um, that arrangement so that, um, if you like, authority will be more equally distributed and that will then remove the fear because some priests did say to me that they were scared to raise their voice about anything because this little group had all the power. And um, so that's, a, that, that's an issue, I think, which uh, the new bishop will have to keep working on. But that also applies to lay people as well because they found that their voice wasn't being listened to and the mechanism for for diocesan commissions and so on had fallen partly into disuse. Then there's also the question of the staff. That, that's that been considered by the, uh, the, the CSSA, the Catholic Safeguarding Standards Agency in their report, and they've shown the way in which our staff were undermined by by the previous bishop not, not following their advice. So these are all, if you like, instances where people are are being disempowered, whether they are staff or laity or even clergy, because of uh, a mindset I think which just did not understand uh,
0: how governance should work in a diocese. But one of the things that was found to have happened was that Bishop Byrne did not take the advice of the safeguarding officer. Have you changed things to ensure that doesn't happen again? So a bishop can refuse anybody's
1: advice um, if, if he wants to, um, but um, that's not the way most bishops work these days. So I don't think I can make a big change there. I can't change the the nature of the the church, the way it's constructed. You know, in if just in these few months, but um, but nowadays um, bishops, generally speaking, work closely with their safeguarding team, just as they work closely with the other teams that lay. Professionals and advisors within their diocese, and there's certainly nobody nowadays would go against advice given, whether it's by safeguarding or by finance or by you know other people who advise us, our lawyers, people within the pastoral departments as well. So it, I would see um, the future, and it's the way I've always tried to work: is to work is to be
0: about bishop and priests and people working together. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to those people in the diocese like Hex of Newcastle who feel quite disillusioned and upset and very worried about the future? I to so say sorry to start with, but I do feel sad. I sad
1: that the, this part of the church in England the world has has become like that. Yeah, I think it was unnecessary and it's been very hurtful and painful for people. But um I I do believe that the measures that we've taken will help to restore that. Because one thing that I've introduced is the listening project amongst the clergy. And we did this in my own uh, diocese, I diocese in Liverpool, as a result of our diocesan synod. It's not an easy thing to take part in or to um, accept in terms of its conclusions and so on. Um, because everybody becomes very self-reflective, and, uh, and mm-hmm. people start to speak from their hearts, and, um, and, and it just becomes, it, well, it's an amazing experience, really. I mean, I was amazed by I had that, because uh, that I just kind of went along with it, uh, but, um, but it, it certainly has brought me to a point where I've had to reflect deeply on my ministry and my own diocese. Um, I didn't find that easy, to be honest. So I've asked Father Sean Hall here in Newcastle, who's an old colleague, uh, to conduct this, and he's, so he's doing it for the clergy, for and deacons, but it's extended over what we did in Liverpool. They're engaging a LA lay facilitator to actually help with the process, and um, the um, and they're also extending it um, through trained facilitators to the laity and to the staff in the diocese. So that will be, I hope, the beginning of the healing process, but it's not, um, it won't be an instant cure.
0: No. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And it's clear that those parts of the church that have taken on the synodal uh, path mm-hmm. have often done so in, in response to the problems around safeguarding abuse, etc. Yeah. Um I mean, it, in, in your mind, is the synod, as you see it, the way forward for the church? Yeah, I think the, I, t- I
1: think well, I suppose we all have our different understandings of, of you know, what the Holy Father has been saying to us all. Um, I think it is the way forward because what, it, what Pope Francis is really saying to us is that we have to reform ourselves. Uh, every individual in the church has to ref- be reformed, and what did. Become synodal in their being, so it's not it's not um, a structural thing at all. I, I don't believe this. I, I, you know, I, it I don't think kind of changing, you know, the structures in the Vatican and or even in the diocese and opening this commission and closing that department actually make would make too much difference. But what will make a massive difference is if people can go the, through those three stages, the through the three stages that that Pope Francis has spoken about, about encounter, which principally means encounter with Christ, but also, of course, with this church, with people, with the world in which we live. But they're all kind of extensions, if you like, of aspects of the body of Christ. And then after that encounter, to go through a deep period of deep listening, and that means listening to God, Holy Spirit, each other, what's happening in the church, listening to ourselves, and that's that's a very difficult thing to do. We have to learn to be able to listen. And then the following, then a process of discernment, which would then hopefully uh, result in actions. But perhaps a bit more than action, it will result in a change of culture in the church. It, we just change the way we, we are Christians, the way we respect each other, the way we behave towards people, you know, and, uh, and I think it, and the way we listen to people, and we don't think we know it all the time. And I think if we can do that, then there is a, then a real change will take place, and it will be like a
0: revolution. Do you think structural change would happen after that point? It-
1: I think so, because you populate the structures with people who have become synodal
0: in themselves.
1: And then once you've done that, of course, the
0: structure. Okay, so, so you, your point is. It's the priority. The priority is, first of all, to become synodal yes. in your style and culture.
1: Yeah, and mindset, and make that a general culture within the church. So, I'm mean, going to give one little, outfit, one little example in my own diocese, after taking advice and listening to, to the people in our diocesan synod, which was a four-year process for listening, discernment, action, and uh, one of the things that i've done is to introduce an advisory bishop's advisory council now that doesn't exist in canon law. there's an optional thing in canon law about the bishop having a council of advice but they are really thinking about priests but that's only part of the advice i want hear. so i've widened that i've taken some priests out of it because they're not there they don't necessarily need to be part of a priest of responsibility for, say, the sick and retired clergy. So, so I've included um, and various people who represent various works within the diocese, um, and also is outward-looking kind of actions. And I've included a strong justice and peace element, pointed um, to the woman as an advisor, and justice, by justice and peace. Um, and so there are several women on this group um, not to lay people as well as priests. That's the advice I want I don't want to hear, but you know, stuff channelled through necessarily through priests. But I must
0: say, that most of the priests I work with are already very open and quite. Recent. So when you have this synodal culture and this listening, yeah. that 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 prevents the problems, or that can go a long way to preventing the problems oh, that we've yeah. seen in. I think in X, when you yeah, were. because it's a. It's not just about kind of simply taking advice from
1: from the adversity or someone who you perceive to be against you because they think differently from you we're we're all working together um we with an awful lot of respect and trust between people, and so the you know,
0: the truth will emerge you know yeah and um, you know you mentioned your synonym mm. that you've led in Liverpool. Um, And the Vatican at one point cited Liverpool, uh, or I think Cardinal Grecht sent a message to Liverpool, um, Cardinal Grecht being the leader of the Synod office in Rome. Uh, Applauding what what you've done, and you have been a kind of early pioneer of it, what are the main things that that have come out for you from this Synod process?
1: But I think the main thing is to change culture, okay. and that's going to be represented by different bodies. Um, we're going to have synodal councils and uh, at the deanery level and then also at a diocesan level, which will which will be a um, forum for, for not just for exchange of ideas, but for, but for this deep listening that we've learned to do as a result of the synod. I think um, the church which will emerge in the future uh, will be um, will be the better for in modal way. So, so we're looking at how we can best use our, our structure. We've always done it to some extent, but, uh, you know, our redundant churches, our things like that. You know, we also want it to become, as a result of the sin that we want our where our young people are. We want to be able to to build a better relationship with them because our young people are in our schools and we have hundreds of schools. We have 240 schools in Liverpool, Catholic schools, and they're full of bright, energetic and often faith-filled young people, and yet we don't see them in church and not in the same numbers. And I want to know why and how we can Listen to them and find out what we, you know. So some of these are old topics, but I hope that, they're, but they're still very, very, very uh, alive topics for us, and uh, they're ones that that we think using, you know, different ways of engagement, listening, and so on, that we will be able to uh, be prepared for
0: the future, which is a bit unknown. Never. The synod is the way to construct the future for the church. The... Yeah,
1: well, I think so. We, we don't know what the church in you know, what the future holds. None of us do do it. We? But we can't, um, we, we can't just um, dissipate all the, the energy, the faith, the assets, the, the, the wonderful things that our forebears have left us. And so what, what we try to do in passing on the tradition and on is to find, we have to find new ways of doing this modes of, of expression.
0: And what about the contested topics that we're seeing emerge through this Senate process? There are calls for women deacons, for example. There's calls for greater inclusion, um, same-sex couples, etc. But there's a lot of disagreement over the way to go. Where would you uh, see as as... as what would you say that needs to happen to to respond to these contested topics?
1: Well, uh, I think the we have to be open I think, to to change in the future. We can't close down uh, possibilities of change, whether it's in ministry uh, um, or whether it's in the way in which people behave, live their lives together we we're, we're working out of of different frameworks of, of morality to the ones which um, we which are common now and that is for us um, for example a challenge not to keep saying well we're right and we've got this correct um, but we need to listen and to discern more deeply about so many aspects of people's everyday lives um, but and then also with regard to more internal issues in the church, I think, once again, we we, we cannot close the door. It's so uh, yeah. we can't say, uh, uh, Pope, you know, X number of years ago said there was no future for married clergy or something you know, in the church. Um, that's not listening to the Holy Spirit, that's listening to.
0: So you be in fa- would you be in favor of ordaining married men? I, I can't put it as simply as that. I've got married
1: men who are ordained certainly. In my diocese, they're ex-Anglicans. Um, but it's, it's not really a yes or no question. Okay, no, because um, although there's no theological impediment to them to being ordained, uh, assuming they're already married, um, that seems to be the tradition in the church, then and we have to meet the Eastern rites of the Catholic church. So it's, it's not that that's the issue. I think the issue is about the way in which their lives um, would need to be to be shaped by the by our traditions, and we're a bit out of practice at that, okay. and uh, and there's also to do with things like funding and whether we can be just to a married man as a family, um, you know, where do he live, how much will we get pay paid, how, you know, what's his time allocation, sure. all those things. So, so there's there there are bigger questions that yeah. we need to look at. We're learning, of course, and female deacons. I think there's a possibility there, just as the Pope does, that's why he keeps looking and we send the commission back to think about it again. See, ordination in the church is really about taking responsibility. And the gift which, uh, the grace which we pay for in ordination is uh, is uh, the grace of service. That's the gift which the deacon receives it's at the heart of the ordination There, Now, women serve the church in many, many ways. Um, so it's, it's uh, that's why I think there's many Catholics, including the Father, who want to get to the bottom of this question, because the deacon, when you take his kind of ministerial functions down to basics, uh, can actually do more, do no more than a lay person. And when he's, uh, so you know, he can witness a marriage, people marry each other, he can baptize, but then if he, any person baptizes they have the intention of the church in each funeral services, but in many out of the world they're uh, led by mayority anyway. So it's a, it comes down to the question of responsibility, of taking you know, responsibility for an aspect of the church's work. Well. So I don't see too many obstacles in uh, myself, in the way that women well, are being ordained as deacons, but we have to make sure that what we're doing is very much in the tradition of the church, and and that's where the doubt would come in because although there are possible mentions in the New Testament for deacons, one or two other historical references, there doesn't seem to be a clear path in the early church in deacons. So so I think the question's still open.
0: And same-sex couples?
1: Well, what they do, Amongst themselves, or people, I think is very much uh, down to the couple, isn't it? I mean, it's the church. um, The church is points the way to Jesus Christ, and um, so in my own ministry as a priest and as a bishop, I've never, never um, spoken on this topic at all. But practically, I have included when I was a parish priest, for example, a couple of occasions in the past. I always included gay people in in the uh, in the life of the parish. Um, I um, had them taking personal responsibility, helping with the finance and stuff like that. Um, not because they were gay, but because they were good at what they were doing. Yeah. and and I've never really um, asked anyone what their sexual orientation is. I like that word of uh, Pope Francis' answer was that uh, he, he uses nouns, not adjectives. So, uh, I see the person, not, not the adjective. And that's what the Church should focus on. Yeah, that's what it should focus yeah. on, and, and uh, matters of personal kind of actions and morality are yeah. probably for the spiritual advisor, for the confessor. Yes. yes. Yeah.
0: Just finally, we are take a kind of synodal gathering. Where we, at the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. is being asked to listen to other mm-hmm. Christian traditions, um, you are a, a religious, a Dominican. What are your tips for to people for how to listen? Because it seems that listening is one of the key things of the synod. That is one of the hardest things. What would your top tips be? Well, the first one, there's a member of the order of preaching
1: is to shut up. <laughs> That you have to stop talking and thinking of what you're going to say next. And that is, is really quite fundamental in practice. You really have to kind of empty your mind so that you can listen clearly to what they're saying. And then to think about that after the conversation is finished, not during the conversation, because otherwise the, the conversation is just kind of to and fro, tit for tat. It doesn't really... Um, you know, give give an equal, but uh, that doesn't give the right kind of credit to the uh, to to what the other person say. And because you're always trying to say something yourself, give your response in. So that my top tip is really just to shut, not talk, not talk, not think. Of what you're going to say next,
0: but just to think about what the person say. And could the appointment of bishops be changed to bring in? A broader number of people into the consultation. Well, to be honest with you, Chris, I've really
1: given this great deal of thought, but it, it does occur to me that that the people should have a voice in the appointment of a bishop. That voice has a liturgical space in the ordination ceremony, where when the bishop, new man is presented, the uh, the people shout out, "Thanks be to God," and that's their their acclamation, if you like, of him for office. Um, and that would be um, a, a vestige of an early church process where where the people would have had a much larger voice in the appointment. So I think the challenge to the church at present is to find ways in which that can be done, preserving the integrity of the candidates. Um, I think that's the reason for the, the secrecy in the present. Process. Every person that says in canon law has a right to their good name and you don't want people's to be, uh, men to be, um, you know, uh, spoken about badly in the public arena for, for no reason um, when it's not necessary. So there there has to be a way forward and um, I'm sure it's not beyond the ken of the uh, Vatican. And the synod words. process. Synod process can be a part of this. People should realize their rights in the church. They have a right to speak out on this. I don't want to have the papal nuncio inundated with letters and phone calls from people around the country, but uh, there should be a, a method of gathering together the people's thoughts within a diocese when a vacancy becomes apparent
0: and channeling their suggestions uh, into the process. I mean, you've been a bishop for a number of years a church, leader for a number of years involved in various different things. Um, you still hopeful for the church, and, and what keeps you? What keeps you hopeful? Well, when
1: I visit primary schools, I come away full of hope and joy. That's the when I see um, children, particularly younger children, uh, really wanting to get to know Jesus and and loving. The, the Christian community, which the Catholic primary school is, and other primary schools as well, I'm sure, um, you know, loving that community, a place of witness and love, then that fills me with hope. Um, so when I'm here at the Synod or this kind of this gathering, which is discussing the Synod kind the of Synod itself, I, I see faith alive in other people, and that is what keeps me going.
0: whether they young or old? That's right. Well, Ash Malcolm, thank you very much for your time and thanks for, for, for sharing your, your insights on this podcast. Thank you
1: very much for inviting me to do
0: it. It's been an honour. This is a podcast sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham, in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.